Welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. We're your hosts, Max Frost, Max Tui, and Matt Winesett. Each week, we take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers. Thank you for tuning in. Let's start bantering. If you don't know who Caitlin Flanagan is, there is a void in your life. She is one of today's most thoughtful and funny social critics. She writes for The Atlantic about modern issues, gender relations, political correctness, identity politics, abortion, education, college. And she often writes what no one else is willing to say, but everybody else is thinking. Before joining The Atlantic, Caitlin was an advisor for students at one of the nation's most prestigious prep schools. She attended America's greatest university, the University of Virginia, and has no shortage of fascinating stories. She's the author of two books, Girl Land and To Hell With All That, and we are ecstatic to speak with her today. That was Max Frost. This is Max Tui. And next you will hear from Matt Winesett. But first, you want to know what else is a great read besides Caitlin Flanagan is the banter newsletter. We send it out every week. Email us at banter at AEI.org for you to be included. And Matt Winesett. Without further ado, here is Caitlin Flanagan. Governor Haley, thanks for coming in. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. Mr. George Will, welcome. Glad to be with you. Arthur Brooks, welcome back. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Ambassador Wolfowitz, pleasure to have you. Nice to be here. Thanks. Ms. Peggy Noonan, thank you for coming. Guys, thank you very much for having me. Mr. Bolton, it's an honor for you to be with us today. Glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. J.D. Vance, welcome. Thank you for having me. Caitlin, thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thank you for having me. I was very happy to we be have, invited. Well, <laughs> terrific. And we have so much we want to talk to you about today. But the first question we have mm-hmm. is, can you tell us a little bit about your story or at least how you became a writer? Well, my father was a quite renowned historian and writer. I grew up in Berkeley. I was a troubled kid. I didn't do the right things. I dropped out of high school. But I lived in a household that was just absolutely full of writers and literature and discussion about writing. And when I was a girl, Joan Didion came for dinner and then sort of stayed in town for this prolonged period. And that really had an effect on me. And it really had, when I was growing up, Joan Didion, Susan Sontag, and Pauline Kael, they'd all gone to Berkeley. I was from Berkeley. They were the generation before me. And they all had interesting biographies. They weren't born into, none of them was born into a wealthy family. And they were these fearless women. And they just, they kind of fearlessly occupied whatever they want to, to do. They weren't afraid to, to write about politics. They weren't afraid to be feminine at all. They weren't afraid to write about sort of specifically feminine subjects. They didn't write about them in any doctrinaire way. They weren't, you know, using any jargon or any buzzwords. And I just thought that's a really cool thing to do and to be. So when you went off to college, did you go there with the goal of I want to be like them when I grow up? No, I grew uh, say. So it's a young podcast, so let me tell you about the old days. Um, to the, I didn't have a plan like, I'm going to go to college and meet a husband, although I did, but um, do both of those things. I just sort of was of a generation that I thought my big job in life is to have a marriage and a home and children. That was the one thing that I knew the way now people know there'll be a career or you know, women know it as well as men, and, and maybe that's good, but that's what I really wanted to do, and I figured I'd fit my career in around that. So then I went to graduate school in art history. I didn't love that. I taught high school. I loved that. I stay, then I stayed home with children. And then by this weird, fluky thing when my kids were six months old, because I always read a lot, I just got this weird chance to write book reviews at the San Francisco Chronicle, which is 
to me, it just seemed like I had gotten a Nobel Prize. I mean, you got $120 for these things. I spent like so many hours on them. They were just fish wrap at the San Francisco Chronicle. They never gave me the important books, but I would just, whatever it was, like I would just own the subject. I would own the writer and turn these things in. And then another friend of mine became an editor at the Atlantic, and he very kindly, Ben Schwartz, said, uh, come and write here. And he kind of taught me with my first essay how to write a magazine piece. And then, you know, he went on from the Atlantic, and I'm still there. So where does – you've written a lot. First of all, you've given Mr. Schwartz plenty in return. Okay. <laughs> well, you have to talk to him about that, but uh, that's for another podcast. But, <laughs> you know, we also – one issue we want to talk to you about today are some of the – college scandals, whether that's Varsity Blues, Mm -hmm. whether that's some of the gender relations, sexual assault issues, and freedom of speech issues on college campuses. But you were, something you tie into some of your pieces on that is the fact that you were a high school counselor at Harvard Westlake, one of the most elite high school boarding, is it a boarding school? It's a day school. It's a day school. Okay. Well, preparatory schools Mm -hmm. in the country. Yeah, it's um a very very I mean it's it's a West Coast school but it's in league with Exeter, Choate, Dalton, Sidwell. I mean they send a huge slate of kids. I, I like the new term Ivy Plus where you sort of incorporate yeah. the Ivy League and then you also have um you know your Williams and your Amherst and your Stanford. So a huge slate of kids went there. And so this was like 23 years ago before I quit. And I thought, boy, college madness is at its height. I'm going to, for the rest of my life, I'll say, you know, in the 1990s, I worked in college counseling and these people were really insane about their kids getting into colleges and the kids were so crazy. But now it's everything's gone back to normal and it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. And this idea that your life will be just ruined if you don't have a certain college next to you and that everything in your adolescence is about that college and that you're that every, all your parents' effort and labor in raising you in the very intensive, horrible way that we have raised you people, because you're all like my kids' age, <laughs> like we really like artisanally raised our children, and that the kids will somehow let their parents down, no matter how many times the parents say, I just want you to be happy. The kids gotten the message all the way through that all of this effort and labor and love was somehow leading to college And that if you want to really please your parents, the colleges are really rated or ranked. We kind of know, well, if I went to Denison, my parents wouldn't be as happy as if I went to Amherst. They know that their parents know the gradations as much. And so I've just been interested in how this chase has begun to rob us nationally in a very corrupt and moral way. It's corrupted parenting that you're trying to perfect a child. It's corrupted education and that, as we've seen, people are explicitly paying bribes and going around the system. It's corrupted education itself because it's made this – the colleges become more and more expensive and there's this bifurcated system where the full-pay students are sort of courted. And then it's – it's and then that so many of our public schools, you know, we it, eight years of Bush failed, eight years of Obama failed, no child left behind and, and common core. That's 16 years. Here's the right – Uh, Here's the conservative approach. Here's the liberal approach. Nothing has happened. So I'm very interested in education. Well, phrased that way, the whole Varsity Blues scandal seems like the next logical step from that, where you have people paying thousands and thousands of dollars Mm -hmm. to do that. But I remember hearing you, you said somewhere, you compared being a counselor and telling a family that their kid wasn't going to get into Harvard to being an an oncologist and telling someone they had cancer. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm wondering, do people 
are these parents, are they like that? Which is a fantastic metaphor, I think. But are the parents like that for their, do they care about themselves? Or do they care about their kids? You know, it's like, my kid's not going to get to Harvard. This is humiliating. Or my kid's not going to Harvard. He's going to have a horrible life. Well, I have thought much about this. And having just been a parent recently and sent kids off, there's a couple of things. As a parent, I will tell you, because I always, even though I sent my kids to those kinds of prep schools, I said, we're not playing this game. I was in it. You're not, I'm not going to let you take a ton of APs if you're also playing this varsity sport. And you're, we're going to, on junior year, we're going to look at some colleges. We're going to find some you like that you can get into. You're going to apply early. And that's where you're going to go. We're not pa- doing the paper chase. So, but still, I noticed even in my perfect way of being a mother, because <laughs> I'd been through this. I started to get more, and I mean, my kids are at great colleges. They love their colleges. They're perfectly suited for their colleges. But as the admissions came in and, oh, there's my friend, son. He's going to Harvard. Oh, my other friend. Have I done something wrong? Have I failed my child? Was I supposed to be part of this? And really second-guessing myself. And, you know, it's very pernicious, and it goes very deep. And I think that High school is where the kids are getting graded and colleges are where the parents are getting graded. Because you would sort of run into mm. someone that you thought, oh, that mom, she's kind of loosey-goosey. I didn't really like that mom. Oh, her son's going to Princeton? She was a lot more on the ball than I thought she was. Yes. You know, it's deep and it doesn't make – in law school, it makes a difference. There are some fields that look for that Ivy League imprimatur. But most every field wants a degree. That's it. But, you know, the, the, it, there's an element of about this that feels so permanent. It's like this is the crew neck you're going to be wearing for life. You're, are you going to be wearing you Chicago, you Penn? What crew neck are you wearing? Mm-hmm. It feels like a tattoo of status, yes. you know, f- for young people and then, as you point out, for their parents. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's funny is – is that we're all, you know, rolling our eyes and saying this is stupid, but I, we were all part of this. Yeah, I'm not rolling my eyes at all. I feel like, <laughs> if anything, I'm like, Mom, why aren't you more like Felicity Huffman? You could, right. <laughs> you got me I thought you were going to say Amy Shua. Okay. <laughs> did, 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 being, did raising kids yourself make you more sympathetic <laughs> to this 25% of families that, that – did you see their side a little bit more or was no. it the opposite where you thought – The really? opposite, to okay. see what they were putting their kids through, all in pursuit of something. And I agree with you. There is a sense that that's your permanent mark, a tattoo. You're right. And there's just – for the rest of your life, I feel like if you had gone to Princeton or whatever, when people ask you that inevitable question, you got a good answer. You know, you got a damn good answer. And certain assumptions are made about you. This person in your generation is obviously worked really hard. And in other generations, this student, this person obviously came from a certain kind of background, social background. But what I see these parents doing is really, we talk about the snowflake generation, for a kid to get into, say, Princeton, they literally can't make a mistake. You know, 25 years ago, you could get that C plus, you could screw up in, in 10th grade, and then you could see the kid rise from that, and you could see the kid grow from that. Nowadays, that C plus would preclude you unless you're an athlete or you have some special track. So the parents know that, so they can't allow those kids to make a mistake. And children learn by playing and adolescents learn by making mistakes and growing from them. That's how an adolescent learns. So they're not grown when they get to college. Because they haven't been allowed to make a mistake because they've got to get to Princeton. They've got to get to Williams. And they're not allowed to, oh, you know, I mean, I'm not a good example since I dropped out of high school. But they're not allowed to just get in trouble for cutting A class, the A class, not, <laughs> not stop going. Um, they, they just are made very frail 
because they can't make any mistakes. And so I think they really hamper the kids. And they really, it's true, those things you read that you think are, are comics are true that when the final exam time comes, they do bring the puppies, a lot of these schools, and the coloring books. And it's like, you're majoring in sociology. I think you can handle the stress, you know? <laughs> it's not like organic chem. By the way, know? we need those for banter next time. <laughs> so we need puppies and coloring books. Oh, for good. So, so, well, now I think this kind of plays into something else you've written a lot about are kind of like gender dynamics, particularly mm-hmm. on college campuses. So I'm curious, just, I just want to hear your thoughts. So I know you went to UVA. Mm-hmm. Matt and I both went there. We were there during the Rolling Stone mm-hmm. debacle. And now I think that we could all admit that there are certainly questionable gender dynamics in certain areas of the campus, you know, with some of these fraternities and all that kind of stuff. On the other hand, though, you've got 15,000 20-year-olds. It seems kind of natural that people are going to struggle to figure things out. I don't know. I'm just curious to get your thoughts. When you saw the stuff play out at UVA with the Rolling Stone thing, what did you think? Well, it was interesting because I've written two big cover stories or two big mm-hmm. fraternity stories. I had written one for The Atlantic about two years before that. And so I had really been it because I really didn't know how it all worked at that time. I was really inside the system and got to know a lot of the men that run the different fraternities, the adults. And anyways, I decided that I wanted to include a rape, but I had one qualification. It had to be a rape that came with a criminal conviction and a prison sentence. Because I just knew so many of these stories. I'm not going to say they don't stand up, but that a lot of the very lurid stories have been a bit embellished in the process. A lot of stories. But but so anyways, what was my personal response was when I read that essay, I said, oh, my God, I missed the story. I had no idea. People were being gang raped because, you know, I, here I was. I thought I was having honest conversations. Right. Little did I know it's gotten to a point where there's like gang rapes on glass tables and Rolling Stone was such, in my youth, it was such a reputable, I mean, my childhood, it was such a reputable place. And in the current era, it's a it's a decent, it's a regular shop. It's got a fact checking. But the idea that, oh, if a, we got to believe the woman, we got to believe it. Gee, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. To, and even I read it and I thought I just missed the whole story. And um, it was interesting because I happened to be at speaking that the day it all fell apart, I was speaking at the National Convention of Fraternity and Sorority Advisors. And they were it was in this horrible moment. And then it all came out. And I was like, I was there like when the news came out, everybody's doing this and they're in the big conference room. They handled it, I must say, with incredible grace. Nobody was high fiving each other. You know, I was no, there's no press there. I was, I just happened to be there. Nobody knew I was there except people I was meeting with. They didn't high five. They didn't yell. They handled it with grace. And I was actually impressed by that. I think the gender dynamics on campus, I don't at all blame the young women at all, but I think that, and I don't exonerate the young men, but I think that Young women are at a point in life where, in an earlier era, you didn't begin your sexual life having seen this extreme pornography, mm-hmm. and you didn't begin your sexual life having been given this expectation that a hookup is the way to begin. The opposite, opposite. You'd seen no hardcore porn, you know. You still had that idea you're going to have a boyfriend. You had a boyfriend in high school. You probably start off with a boyfriend in college, that, that it would unfold from there, you weren't, let alone super sexually sophisticated, you had, like, I just don't know what your generation, I just, like, no wonder there's this yeah. sexual recession. It's just, oh, my God, if I were a girl, you're just kind of taking these tentative steps into your sexuality, 
The idea that they think this is good for them, they know they're unhappy, they're stuck in a binary. After that hookup, it was either a wonderful experience or in some way it was a violation of Title IX. That's the only way they know to look at it. And even if they don't go to report it, that's and of course they're walking away feeling that was unsatisfying. It was kind of degrading. I gave the impression that I didn't want him to call or text again. And I'm sure he got, you know, he's gotten that message too. But what I've noticed, because I speak in colleges a lot, kids will come up. There's a lot of kids, I'm going to call them boys and girls, young men and young women. I mean, they're like embryos to me. But <laughs> I sense an incredible craving for girlfriends and boys for longer term relationships an incredible craving for that on both sides and really not knowing how to do it or how to get there. And the girls being a little fearful that maybe that's bad for them on their path to being feminist and the guys trying to figure it out. And I just feel that something's kind of lost. And I just talked with a young woman like two months ago, and she said that finally her senior year, uh, you know, a boy had sort of asked her out and, and they had become boyfriend and girlfriend and they're still together. And she said, when he told his friends that he was dating her, they all said, oh, I would love to date her. And her fr- and so he told her proudly. And she thought, I would have loved to go out with any of those guys. You know? <laughs> I hope she you didn't know? tell her boyfriend <laughs> No, that. she didn't. She told me that. And yeah. I just thought, that's so telling. She went, she really is kind of a more traditional girl. She would have liked that. There's, it's really, you know, I know kids that are, you know, have that traditional relationship. Both my kids are in the sense of having a, you know, college partner, but I think something's missing that doesn't really, of course, you know, sexual assault on college campus is real, has to be dealt with. But I think an even another, maybe related or not, issue is there's a real longing for connection and relationship. And like in the 70s or 80s, those women who were going to like have these hookups or as they were called one night stands, but PJ O'Rourke said that today's hookup makes the one-night stand of the 70s look like an arranged marriage in decree, you know? <laughs> but um, it was like, that was a really sexually sophisticated woman. You know, she was in her mid-20s. She'd, you know, probably started out. It's like the idea that this girl's going to get to college at 18 from her home bedroom at home. You know, granted, she's very sophisticated in all sorts of ways, and that she's going to initiate her private sexual life outside of her family's home with hookups I don't know why anybody would think that that would well, be good. Well, there, if there's this longing for it, why doesn't it happen? Why doesn't Tui have a girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> okay, like, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm looking at a handsome. Yeah, yeah. I was like, who's you talk to? Who's that young woman? Okay. Now I'm trying to get my 56-year-old girlfriend a boyfriend. Now i got to get you a What's girlfriend. What's like talking to a young woman? No. Um, I think a question I have at least is it's interesting. Once you graduate from college, it seems that the criteria of what people are looking for in a romantic partner changes. And all of a sudden, things like morals start coming back onto the picture. Things like professional trajectory matter more. But in college, the criteria is so social group based. And you talk about this is what a, a girl might say or a boy or one of our friends might say off the record, privately, one-on-one. But once you get into those group dynamics mm-hmm. that have been shaped now for so long, right. it's frat culture, who'd you hook up with mm-hmm. last night? It's not the, did you just have, did you watch My Fair Lady? Right. Or any, you know, bruschetta. I don't know. If, but you know, That you know sounds I mean? like a really nice date. <laughs> you know, I mean, 
I think there is a disconnect between what people say one-on-one and then how they behave in groups at college. And I don't know why that is. Well, because culture is very powerful, especially when you're young. Your culture and peer culture can be a very positive thing. You know, here's an extreme example. You know, Pearl Harbor gets bombed. My dad walks off Amherst College campus with his friends, signs up, enlists in the Navy. And I said to him once, Dad, once you did that, you enlisted, what did you do next? He's like, I went to class. You know, <laughs> no, you're not called up for it. You know, it's like your culture really shapes you. So and especially throughout history, throughout culture today around the world, you know, how people get together, how these relationships are formed, eventually families and so forth. Your culture is overwhelmingly a powerful determinant of that. And what I always laugh at is the OK Boomer thing <laughs> It's like you like I go to college campuses, they'll have like that Woodstock picture. Ah, oh, so cool. And they're like, okay, boomer. And I'm like, you dumbass, it's the same person. That all horrible progressive culture that you think you like but that you hate was created by boomers in the se- in the sixties. Like they made your culture. The people who should be angry at the boomers are social conservatives. Because it was the boomers who stripped colleges of their ability to impose some discipline on students of, you know, of having kind of male and female dorms thinking like, yeah, we got to we got to help these kids through this, especially the girls. We got to protect them more who, you know, created free love. All of that were all of those things were boomer inventions. Uh And so the younger generation might very well be upset that we are the inheritors of the houses. And I mean, there's a lot of stuff you could unpack, but that isn't really their problem with the boomers. But the people who should be mad at the boomers, like even when you see the ads, like the retirement ads for like a boomer, he's always like a guy going off surfing. Like I got my hip replaced, but now I'm surfing. Like you can tell he wasn't the square of 1968. And I've got to say to give, you know, we go after millennials, our, our generation a good bit, but things like entitlement. Oh, I guess we just came out of the womb being entitled. Oh no, maybe it has to do with the fact that, you know, the divorce rate is only dipping now. It's 50% for the longest time because people just aren't getting married. And there was just this culture, I think, of such individualism where people weren't even taking care of their kids or attending to them as much. Mm-hmm. I mean, so I think, you know, when you talk about generational traits, I like that you're pointing out that they were taught or inherited or, mm-hmm. you know, cultivated over a long period of time. Yeah. Are things really that worse or different now, though, with our generation? Because if you're saying a lot of this stuff started with the boomer generation, I feel like we have a tendency to kind of over glorify the past and say, oh, things are so much worse now between men and women, or things are so much worse now getting kids into college with all this cutthroat competition. Is it that different than how it used to be? Those are two issues. The college is really different. The issue about men and women, well, your kind of cohort, college-educated people um, are, are famous for, you know, it's all the demographics show it, for having a maybe a wild youth, both male and female, and then getting married before they have kids, having a, you know, usually a small number of kids and being very in- attentive parents, whether both parents are working or not. So I think that it's a, it's a, it's something that your generation, what I often with the woke students will have a problem with is, a lot of them go into fields, let's say sociology, where they write these papers about or they endorse this idea that you don't need a father in the home. Here's some evidence that's kind of bullshit. And here's this and here's that. So they're kind of pushing that. And maybe that's their career in social work or something. But boy, when they're 30, they get married. They don't do the thing that they're pushing into policy. You know, they get married and they 
um, they have kids. And, and so I, but I think, I do think that demographically, that kind of behavior that was once, I don't want to use the word normal, but was widespread and, and has profoundly good societal outcomes is being pushed up higher and higher and higher up the demographics to people who really are upper middle class or middle class. And I think that's a problem for America. Yeah, something Charles Murray and some other AEI scholars here say a lot is that these upper middle class, often liberal people, they don't they don't preach what they practice. They're right. actually surprisingly socially conservative in their mm-hmm. own life. Exactly. Very much so. And yet, and that's why I have a lot of, res- again, boomer respect. But um, <laughs> Because I grew up in Berkeley in the 60s and 70s. My parents were super lefties, old school lefties. I mean, they were born in the 1920s, so they weren't like in a commune or anything. But I saw those kids as a child and teenager of that revolution. And what I have to say with respect is they were putting something on the line. They were al- they were alienated from their parents very often because they were against the war and they were protesting and they had personal lives, maybe sexual freedom, whatever, that their parents didn't want any part of. There were all these articles like about my daughter's wearing blue jeans. What's happening? <laughs> like just that that they rebelled against that. A lot of them dropped out of college. You know, parents either stopped paying or the kids were really like they were striking from the campus. And you struck long enough, you you know, you lost your credits and they left. They were and they made tremendous gains. They did were profound in getting the Vietnam War stopped, which I believe was a profoundly wrong war. They got the voting age lowered to 18. I think that's absolutely appropriate. If you're old enough to go and serve your military, you're old enough to cast a vote about the yeah. war. So they achieved a lot through that. And and I do have respect for them. But I think they also really attacked, and with lasting damage, some of the core institutions that helped people rise up in America. One thing, I, one thing that ties into this that I feel like I have to ask about. Please, are we all feminists? Is it ever wrong to answer no to that? And the reason I ask, I got in a conversation with a female liberal friend of mine, not like an activist by any means, but she said, "Are you feminist?" I said, "Well, it depends. Mm-hmm. Like, I believe in equality between men and women. I don't necessarily support everything feminism stands for." Mm-hmm. Is that the wrong answer? No, words obviously change over time. Here's an example. 25 years ago, or maybe 40 years ago, the word awesome was used very rarely. It meant that this thing is so majestic (laughs) that it has inspired awe in me. (laughs) It didn't mean you got supersized for free at McDonald's because it was a Wednesday. It was so now, you know, things just happen. Words, language evolves, meanings of words change. Maybe we have just a better appreciation of the sublime. Exactly. Maybe. We see it everywhere. Truly, very Dalai Lama that, or or Einstein, everything's a miracle or nothing is. Uh, But, um, but the word feminism has become very deracinated from its dictionary definition. You know, if you just said, well, this, I certainly believe men should and women should have equality. But damn it, are you freeing the nipple? Like, what does that have to do with it? Why are there all this incredible penumbra of just idiot things and different collections of idiot things for different kinds of women? And a related thing is, this drives me crazy. Okay, there's toxic masculinity. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's in a category. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, that's a variety of masculinity that is negative. That tells me that there must, according to this theory, be a variety that's positive. But if you begin to say, here's a, a male trait that is so good, they're going to tell you, women should do that too. Yes. So it's like, so there's no masculinity. And if there's no masculinity, how can there be toxic masculinity? 
Do you think this is the appeal? You're in a great piece in the Atlantic. I read this morning actually okay. on uh, you caught your maybe caught is the wrong word. Cramming. You I love it uh, a little bit, a little bit. Uh, the there's EVA spirit. <laughs> got me, got me through four years. Uh, is this the appeal of Jordan Peterson? Do you think people kind of want this more? Traditional? Oh, by the way, this piece was incredible. This blew up. I had friends send it. I sent it. Yeah. Yeah. And I I don't think that you're not talking to anyone here who is a huge Jordan Peterson fanboy Mm -hmm. or anyway, but we also don't really buy into the why he's so controversial, apparently. What do you think about that? Well, I think that there is, you know, his audience is largely male, although that's changing. And it's been very, very long time since someone came out and in a non-hysteric way sort of said, there are certain things that men do to not be boys anymore. You know, you are in control of yourself, your physical surroundings, you're achieving things, you're moving forward, you're putting away childish things and taking on the things a man does. There's nobody saying that who isn't some like alt-right or MRA person. The very fact that he's saying anything like that immediately makes people think he must be alt-right because that whole thought is so foreign. And I think... There's a real hunger in the culture for young men to have an older male, a male in a position of authority, just sort of say these things. And I know Barry Peterson, I mean, Barry Weiss told me uh, when she was writing about Jordan that when that book was big, 12 Rules for Life, she said she would get on the subway every day and they'd be just copies lined up and down. She said all sorts of backgrounds, racial, ethnic identities, that there was something in this book that was useful to them and was helpful to them. And what he was really doing was a very, very radioactive thing in the culture, which is saying, yeah, there's toxic masculinity, don't get involved. And there's masculinity, which is a very positive trait. So I think that he took a huge risk to do that. I think, and you pointed this out in the article too, I thought one thing that was so spot on about the piece is the title itself, Why the Left is So Afraid, captures the fact that you have colleges where 6% of the social sciences professors are Republican. It's an overwhelmingly liberal group. They're teaching largely liberal ideologies in class. But guess what? When the students go back to their dorm rooms or when they go home on break, they're watching and reading and listening to Jordan Peterson. Or they're doing it on. I always say it's a revolution in the head. You know, they've got yes. that on. So they, you know, they're walking past like some woke idiot thing, like yeah, right on. <laughs> but in their headphones, yes, they're getting yes. an education that they can't even find for their huge I, tuition. I dollars. think the disconnect is kind of scary, actually, because that there's almost radicalized when you have to hide it. Mm-hmm. I think it you tend to, it, it maybe obviously the yeah. minute you yeah. make something seem like a secret knowledge, that's why it's so dangerous that, to have eroding free speech. Because the minute you say, "Oh, this is knowledge we can't even look at, we can't even tolerate it," automatically it's like, "Oh, that's a secret knowledge. There must be worth in that in this area." Yeah, there is, but. The idea that, you know, if if we could just talk about if some like alt-right person came and had an, a, a debate within a good, you know, classical liberal, the classical liberal would win on every single point every time, always. But we can't even allow that to happen. And it's like an abortion piece I recently wrote. If you are so afraid 
uh, hearing the other person's idea, are you afraid because you feel you might get convinced of it or you feel that it's actually more powerful? You should just sit there and listen mm -mm, and then go to the microphone and, you know, cut them down to size with the counter argument is my opinion. Well, I think we're all in full, okay, good. All in all full right. agreement. Unfortunately, Excellent. we are pretty much out of time okay, here. Um, Caitlin, this is wonderful. Thank mm. you for coming on. Thank you. I loved being on Banter, <laughs> <That's it. laughs> which is now being tailor-made to the younger listener. Yes. Crafting it that way. Yes. Inst yeah. Instead of walking around listening to JP, they can listen to us. In Excellent. Excellent. These, these are the revolutionary ideas. I love I, the it. The left is so afraid of banter. I'm just an <laughs> okay. idea of your next piece. Possible Atlantic <laughs> piece. Pressure. Yeah. Okay. All right. Definitely will do. I've bantered. We can all right. do this all day. Thank okay. you so much. You are so welcome. Now for a quick break to hear from our sponsor, the AEI Summer Honors Academic Programs team. We've got a native of the team with us today. Gil, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what it is you do here? Hi, my name is Gil Guerra. I work in the Academic Programs team. I focus on schools in D.C. as well as the Northeast, and I'm here to talk about the Summer Honors Program. What is the Summer Honors Program, and why should I have done that as a college student? Well, the Summer Honors Program is an opportunity to study alongside some of the leading scholars in the world here at AEI, but more than just an opportunity to be able to analyze some of the most pressing public policy issues, it's also an opportunity to do that in a setting that is ideologically diverse. I think many college students today are frustrated because they find that their schools are great, they're surrounded by interesting people that come from all walks of life, all different sort of socioeconomic statuses that all also wind up thinking the exact same way, and I think that's really important to prepare the leaders who are going to be tackling these challenges to be able to do so in a setting that challenges them and that makes them analyze these issues from every angle. So is it an internship or is it, how, how does the program work? It consists of one week long intensive seminars. The seminars are discussion based. They cover everything from K-12 education to China's military. So a very broad range of topics on everything from domestic policy, foreign defense policy, really all of the things that AI is known for having expertise in. How much does it cost? It is fully funded. Free week wait, at AI. Wait, so how many students do the Summer Honors Program? There's about over 200 in total that do it. Uh, we have several classes that are offered throughout the summer. Uh, the seminars themselves are going to be about 20 students each. And so how, let's say you're a college student right now listening to this, how do you go about applying and when is the deadline? You can go on our website. You can go on aei.org slash summerhonors. The early decision deadline is January 6th. And if you apply by that deadline, you'll hear back by February 10th. Our regular decision deadline is February 24th. And we do admissions on a rolling basis as well. Gil, do the students get the lunch or breakfast? They do. We provide breakfast and lunch as well as dinners on most days for all days that they have class. And accommodation? And accommodations, that's correct. Why did all I not know about that? All I did not know about paid this. week at AEI. This is Disney World it. for intellectuals who like Edmund Burke too much. I don't <laughs> yeah, even know. Did you uh, do it as a student, girl? I did. I took Michael Strain's class on democratic capitalism, and it was, for me it was a really great introduction to just the way that academic policy affects the everyday lives of Americans here. And then you got hired from AEI. So if you want a job after college, <laughs> there you go. It's, uh, get well. in the pipeline. It's a direct pipeline. Uh, a select group of 10 students are also chosen to do courses for all four weeks of the program, uh, so they got to have more of a comprehensive view of what goes on in public policy, and an even more select group of students will get a photo op and signature from Max Tui, so definitely <laughs> <not> <laughs>
Do we get to own the libs in the class? The <laughs> <laughs> well, libs might own you. That's, pretty odd. Like That's the, the beauty of the program. The competition of ideas. The competition of ideas. Gil, thank you so much. Thank you. Everyone, apply Summer Honors Program. How do you do it again? You go on our websites. Go on the website, AEI.org. Org. Just Google AEI Summer <laughs> Honors. You will find it. Well, folks, that was Caitlin Flanagan, Matt Winesett, kick us off. Well, I love anyone that went to UVA like her. So I was, I think, predisposed to like this interview, but she was great. I mean, I wish we could talk to her for a lot longer. The Varsity Blues stuff, really, if you have, we're going to put these links in the description. If you've not read her work before, I cannot recommend enough that you check it out. Her essay on Varsity Blues, the whole Lori Laughlin, Felicity Huffman scandal was fantastic and also just hilarious. Like some of the stuff she d- dealt with as a college counselor in a in like a very elite prep high school it's just it feels like something out of a novel yeah and she's just she's funny i mean so much of the stuff we read it's like serious and politics and policy she's just funny the stuff she writes is super insightful and she's writing about topics that are just incredibly interesting to read about whether it's the you know campus gender relations or political correctness or identity politics she is uh, reminds me of andrew sullivan in the sense that you never know where she's going to come down on a given issue and that's part of the I, I think that shows not just a contrarian instinct in the writer but i think that shows a commitment to nuance i think it's how every writer should be is a sense of they're keeping you on your toes as a reader. Exactly. The worst thing is a predictable columnist who you're going to check in with every week and you know exactly what they're going to say. And Caitlin Flanagan, Andrew Sullivan, others are not like that at all. And what do you think? What do you guys think of her idea about the ridiculous, it's not super going out on a limb, but the super absurd pressure that college, prospective college students face today? high school students, just how important it is to go to an elite college and how that's such a status symbol. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's going to get any better or easier anytime soon. What she writes about is a bit of a different world. I mean, I went to a big public high school in North Virginia, so there was a lot of pressure to get into college, but it was also people were happy to go to state schools. They were happy to go basically anywhere. They just wanted to go to college. In some of these environments she's writing about, it honestly feels like if you don't get into Princeton or Yale or somewhere like that, you might as well leave town as an exile and shame. You're a failure. Yeah. But then again, I mean, if you're going to pay 50, 60, 70 grand a year to send your kid to prep school, it better I'd be. like to they... see some ROI. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Give, me, give me a nice crew neck. <laughs> but I mean, even at a school like UVA, you deal with a lot of prep school kids. I mean- It's stratified though. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I mean, like-, like Fran- okay. But w- what I'm saying is I hate this feeling that you've arrived once you get into one of these schools too. It's like, all right, I reached the promised land. Now I can work in an NGO for the next five years. No knock on NGOs, but it's kind of like that ambition kind of drove you to this college. I've seen people lose ambition once they got to the promised land, which is college, because your entire childhood is a crescendo leading up to college. Well, I'd be curious what it's like at Notre Dame because where they don't have fraternities because at UVA, I mean, the way it works is people who go to these really elite Matt, you know, Matt and I both went to public schools. The people who go to men pri- of the people, we're men of the people, men of the real people. blue collar guys. Here. The people who go to the really elite private schools come into you come to UVA, and I'm sure it's the same at all the other big southern schools. Come into UVA, go directly into one of the elite fraternities where they don't even have to meet the people in their hall. It's like they're all they already have a social network because so many people from their school already went there. They get in there, all these people then go out and they go to work for the big firms, the big banks, and whatever. So they just coast right into that. So they just already have that network established, which is what I think people are really paying for. It's like, is the education you're getting at a private prep school that much better than at a public high school? I think, I mean, it depends on school. No, but I think it, generally, no, it's to get your 
person to that network it, immediately. It feels get... like parallel track experiences where you have one track that is the already existing pipeline of the feeder prep schools for, in our case, Chicago mostly. And then you get through it. You're networking with the... There's a school called Del Barton in North Jersey, one of the elite. It's like the Georgetown prep of the New York mm-hmm. suburbs. And it sends a lot of kids to Notre Dame. And their networking isn't even mostly with Notre Dame kids when they get to investment banking jobs or private equity jobs later. It's with high school kids, yeah. with their high school friends. And it's remarkable. It's unthinkable for a lot of people. But shows when you're in those worlds, that's how you make it. It was eye-opening for me when I got to UVA. It was all, I mean, it was more stressful once I got there. Just, I mean, it was, it was great too. It, it kept me ambitious and driven. But the amount of just ambition-driven people that you meet and interact with it was so, it was to a much higher extent of in high school when I never felt like the incredible intense pressure with all my peers about getting into the right college. Whereas you get to a school like UVA and there's suddenly tons of pressure. Everybody's trying to do all the different activities. Everybody's trying to say how much they're studying 18 hours a day or whatever it is. And it was it was a whole different it was a whole different level than what I had experienced. All right, so today's segment is watch, read, listen where we all talk about something interesting we either watched, read, or listened to in the last week. All right, I'll go first. This may be a little bit outdated because we're recording this before the holidays and releasing it later. But mine is a column by Nicholas Kristof this week in the New York Times titled, It's Possible No One Will Read This Column. Every year he writes, he doesn't share the numbers, but he tells us what his least viewed columns are on the year. And it's pretty depressing. His worst read column in 2019 was from Hong Kong, titled Straining Through the Tear Gas, where he actually was on the ground detailing the incredible abuses going on there. His second worst read column was also about China and the persecution of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. And again, he doesn't share the numbers, but his most read columns were all about Trump. It was They were all five times more read than his actually important columns about ongoing human rights abuses. And nobody cares about human rights. Nobody cares about foreign policy. But isn't it depressing that a column about impeachment that you can read in a, on a million different sites is that much more read? Yeah, you know, and, and Wine said, this is something that we've talked about in the sports world, not to add some levity to it, but there are like three or four sports topics at any given time that people want to read. And sometimes they'll say they don't want to read it, that they're tired of it, but all they care about, LeBron James, the New York Yankees, Tom Brady, and three or four other stories, Baker Mayfield, whatever it might be. And you might be like, I'm tired of this. But click, and that's what happens. Yeah. And and I think in this case, it's like Trump all day long, and who cares about the suffering of important populations abroad? I am painfully sick of impeachment and Trump and all this kind of stuff. But in any event, I'll do mine next. Read. I just finished reading this book, Post War by Tony Jew. I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Fantastic book about the history of modern Europe. But one thing stuck out to me. He kept using this term over and over again, mortgaging their future. And he kept using it in terms of the Eastern Europeans and talks about Chernobyl and these other horrible environmental catastrophes where they polluted the whole earth in pursuit of growth and the socialist goal and all this kind of stuff. And he talked, used it pretty much strictly in that capacity, but kept using it, mortgaging their future, which is an idea I liked a lot because on the left, they can use that to kind of criticize the right on environmental issues. It's like, yeah, you're getting short-term growth, but at a long-term cost. Well, how about, which I think is probably true. On the other hand, the right should be using this. You could be saying the same thing about European, the so, about the social welfare states and taxes and huge pensions and all this kind of stuff. They're more in their future in that sense. 
So I think kind of finding this equivalence, equivalency between mortgaging your future and not mortgaging your future, all these different ways is an interesting term that, that made me think of. Love it. And mine is actually get ready for this. I read something this week <gasps> and it's because my aunt sent it to me. Quick shout out to Aunt Betsy. And it was a New York Times article from a couple weeks back called Finland is a capitalist paradise. The whole purpose of the piece is, guess what? A country with big government, big social welfare programs, very engaged state can have a booming, innovative economy. So, you know, the piece was interesting. And if there's one thing I really agree with, it's the idea that America needs a more optimistic view of government. I don't love the Ronald Reagan quote, government doesn't solve the problem, government is the problem. Because all of a sudden you look at our public servants and you're like, wow, you're part of the the beast that we want to reduce as much as possible. So I like that. What I don't like is this idea that we can imitate Finland. Like, you know, all of a sudden, the United States is one big Vermont. We're not. And Vermont, by the way, is more population dense than Finland. It has a more racial diversity than Finland. And so this, it's just an unfair comparison. And I think the idea that we need to do what Finland's doing just because they have a lot of happy campers over there. It's If I can give one analogy. It's like a coffee shop, the coffee shop you love in your neighborhood where they do latte art, the barista knows your name, they're playing nice hipster jazz music in the background. That shtick doesn't work when you're in a booming neighborhood, you need to be in and out, assembly line coffee, no time for names, hurry up, in and out, they're playing Pandora hits in the background, it's a totally different situation, and the fantasy land of one coffee shop cannot always be applied to another. What type of coffee shop do you prefer? I prefer Pandora hits. I hate any music that I don't know the lyrics to, and... And I, I, you know, I mean, I, I definitely prefer the assembly line shop because that's what America is. It's a, it's we're one big assembly line. A revelation that I had recently while reading the same book post-war where he dwells on this idea of like, what is Europe today? And now, you know, essentially when you have Bernie or whoever saying, well, look what they do in Scandinavia. Well, look what they do in France, blah, 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 you know, whatever, pointing to Europe. People need to realize that the European system is distinctly different from our system. To say that we're just going to put it, we're going to give everybody free college and free health. I mean, I think these politicians should be honest and say there is huge government, huge social welfare, whatever you have in Europe, and there are costs to that. You have to decide. Do you want that system or do you want the American system? Two completely different systems. Yeah, I mean, look what's going on with France right now. Macron is trying to get through a couple of reforms that are obviously necessary to keep the economy growing at all. And there's incredible protests everywhere. You can't do anything. And beyond that, did you watch Arthur Brooks' documentary? I know you did. Yeah. You wrote about it. Did yeah. You watch Absolutely. It? So, you know the scene in that where they go to Denmark? I think it's Denmark. Yeah, which I think they it's say Denmark. is that yeah. He says it's the happiest place in the world. Have they solved it? Yeah. And I was kind of skeptical because I've always thought, you know, what a terrific place. People live so well. They're happy. They hard, I mean, it's not that they hardly work, but they, everyone says they have very fulfilling lives or productive, right. whatever. Then he got it to the core of it, which is the cost of that is social, cultural, ideal, you know, ideological uniformity. You are in the system. You are part of this network of a country, and you don't diverge from that. There's also a bit of stagnation. I mean, the, the floor is definitely higher, but the ceiling is a lot lower. They say there's such a culture and norm, they kind of look down mm-hmm. on strivers, which is just so exactly. alien to America. Which and, is the opposite. So yeah, that's and, the cost. Yeah, and actually, and actually, according to, like, I think the Heritage Foundation, they've got this freedom index. Some of the Scandinavian countries have freer 
economies than we do here. So yeah, by some so standards, be even they're more capitalist. Right. Yeah. Right. One hundred percent. And you know, so on the regulatory front, that's something they didn't talk about a lot. And by the way. I mean, sorry to plug my uh, coffee shop analogy again, but you know you can't do the latte art and the barista knowing your name when you have more people. There's more diversity. It's more moving parts. It's just harder to do. And I, I mean, I think this idea of applying what's what works in Finland. Come on. The only way to solve this, I think, will be a banter trip to Finland and Denmark <laughs> to do some fact finding ourselves. We'll set up a GoFundMe <laughs> for that if you want to send us there. Until then, this is our show. Thank you as always for listening, and hope you have a wonderful start to the new year. Yep. And email us at banter at AEI.org for any thoughts, suggestions, needs. And by the way, last thing is we want you to leave a five-star review on iTunes with a comment. But you know, if you do want to be five stars, we also take four stars because we like room for improvement. It's not the best score. Leave a comment, make it engaging. We prefer five and a comment with a suggestion. Yes. Thank you all for listening. See you next time.